In today's show, we're talking NBA draft with Chuck from the Chucking Darts podcast. Michael Bolton. Thanks, Josh. It's Michael Bolton here, and it's time for another episode of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast. Let's get to it. Let's get to it, indeed. You are Locked On Fantasy Basketball, your daily fantasy basketball podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast brought to you by Basketball Monster. My name is Josh Lloyd and I am the lead fantasy analyst at BasketballMonster.com and you can find me on Twitter as always at RedRock underscore B-Ball, on TikTok at RedRock underscore B-Ball, and on Instagram at LockedOnFantasyBasketball. Download the GameTime app, create an account and use the code LockedOnNBA for 20 bucks off your first purchase. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. Thank you for making Locked On Fantasy Basketball your first listen every day. We are free. We are available on all platforms. So, we are here to talk NBA draft. We're going to be talking about City Sissoko, Anthony Black, Jordan Hawkins, and a few more. We'll get Chuck's thoughts on the top five in the draft as well. So, we might as well bring him back. All right, here he is, Chuck from the Chucking Darts podcast. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. Great to be back. It's that time of year again. It is that time. And I'm... Yeah, couldn't be happier. It is that time of year. We had you on last year. I jumped on your show during the season as well. So we're just keeping the collaborations going back and forth here. Um, And we're going to talk NBA draft. We've got five players that we're going to talk about. But before we talk about those five players, I want to talk about another five players. And I want to talk about what you would do at the top of the NBA draft. San Antonio, Charlotte, Portland, Houston, Detroit are the top five picks. So Mm -hmm. if, Chuck, you had five GM jobs simultaneously, what would you do with those five picks? Uh, I'll... First pick is Victor Wembanyama. Not going to waste too much breath on that one. Second pick is Scoot Henderson. I uh, I can see why the Hornets would sort of psych themselves out, but I think at the very top of the draft, you want to take. You truly want to go with best player available. Team fit and construction, I think, does matter, but I think it matters later in the draft when there isn't as much distinction between elite talents. Because if you pass on an elite talent, you're going to have to play that elite talent and you're going to have to beat that elite talent. And that's what I think uh, is most important when considering a, well, we're just going to take a wing in Brandon Miller versus taking, uh, I think, who is a better overall talent in Scoot. So I, I agree with that. I agree with that 100%. Like most people have come on and said about Scoot. And, and yeah, I, I don't trust what Charlotte's going to do at all because, you know, obviously they traded a lottery pick last season for what's going to be you know, the 28th pick in the draft this year. So their ability to judge what they're doing in the draft has me questioning things. But it, it, people say, well, yeah, well, look at the the finals, look at the, the way the playoffs are going and fit's so important. Yeah, it's important to grab your fifth player and fourth player as fits or to grab the seventh man off the bench. Like Bruce Brown's a perfect fit. But that's not. I'm not picking that guy. Pick number two. I'm picking the guy. Mm-hmm. Pick number two. That I hope that I have to get the guys later on when they're in year four, and I'm building around them. That's when I pay attention to that. Not like my superstar needs to fit with because I've got um, Terry Rozier currently on the team. Exactly, and uh, you know Jamal Murray's not a wing, and I would say that he's proving himself to be pretty valuable. Not saying that he's a one-to-one comparison for Scoot, but elite players in the NBA come in all shapes and sizes. What they share is like a relentless ability to score the ball efficiently. And that's what I think the top of the draft is all about. And though Scoot is a great playmaker as well, 
his ability to finish around the hoop and to set up his finishing angles with his handle and with his gather, with his burst, uh, and then his last step, which is as explosive as I've seen coming out of a guard. Um, couple that with his youth, like I, I think that he is the guy at two. I, by the way, don't think that it is absolutely no doubt he's going to be the second best player in the draft because his jumper is a, is a slight question. I just don't think that Brandon is elite enough of a talent to displace him. That's all. What would you do at three then? Uh, three's the really hard one. Are we allowed trades or this is about who oh, we look, would take? At, at the moment, I, I can tell you now that that pick's almost, it's definitely greater than 50% chance of getting traded. That pick's gone. But at this point, let's just say that it's Portland or just in general, who's your third best player? Yeah, I. so it has been Amen Thompson. Yeah, I will stick with Amen Thompson, but that is another one that I, I mean, I'm a lot. Amen has... <laughs> So much athletic talent that I could see a world where he is the second best player in the mm-hmm. draft. I could see a world where a man, if Wembenyama has like recurring injuries, God forbid. But if that were to happen, I could see a world where a man is literally the best player in the draft. But um, it's so enticing and so tantalizing. But there are real issues with that jumper. And there just isn't... Player comparisons can be dangerous, but to me, they can be quite helpful in trying to figure out what sorts of players tend to really, really, really hit and hit hard. And there are not many players in the league who are superstars who don't have workable jumpers. So I believe in enough amen presently. Maybe by the end of the cycle, I will move him down slightly. Um, But I think a lot of people in the draft community like to prioritize playmaking and playmaking creativity. And he certainly has that me at the end of the day, I lean a bit more towards scoring efficiency and a men's scoring efficiency is a bit of a question mark. He oh, is no doubt on, un- unlike any prospect I've really ever scouted. So I'm keeping him at three for now, but it is a real question. How do you, how do you feel about his ability to score the ball? Um, it's so hard. Cause I don't really know how to judge OTA either and how, yeah, this these the level of production versus the level of competition. Not that he hasn't done it against you know pro teams or in other settings as well. I think people forget that. I think well, he's only putting up numbers in OT. Well, he he's been on the radar for many many years as a prospect and has done mm-hmm. it against pro team. That an OT had a, a, a like a five or six game tour early in the season against some European teams and a couple of teams from Australia. I think and he played against the Adelaide Thirty Sixes who beat the Suns yes. in the um, preseason and put up some pig numbers in that one. So it's not, I'm not that worried about that competition, but I still really don't know how to evaluate these OTE guys and, and translate them across. But I am worried about the, the athleticism is insane. I am worried about the, the scoring efficiency overall, but there are players who have improved that in their, in the NBA career. It's really, mm-hmm. it's impossible to teach athleticism. Like you can't teach that part of it. And sometimes the passing and vision and instincts are harder to teach than it is that to get someone to become even passable as a shooter. So at the moment, I'm like you. I have him at, at three. What are you doing for four and five? For four, um, four is Houston, correct? Yeah. Yes. So uh, my number one collegiate player is Taylor Hendricks from Ooh, Central Florida. Wow. He is, okay. He, he is my guy. <laughs> I, I've got it's him. We'll have. I've got him at five. Here. I know. I've got him at five. So I. I oh, had you him. love him. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I had great, him at five. Great, so great, great. I'm really interested yeah. in this. So I, uh, 
I've liked Taylor all year. I did an episode in January about him as sort of like a possible top 10 pick. And then I did another episode in March about him as a possible top five pick. Um, He, what I said on my podcast about him last week is that I feel like, first of all, he's extremely athletic, very good weak side shot blocker, makes shots all over the court, largely dunks and, and jumpers. That's, that's how he's gotten his points and he's been efficient where he's done it. Um, it might seem as though that player is always around. You could say, oh, well, was Patrick Williams that kind of player or was maybe, I don't know, uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. or John Collins or, you know, pick your your power forward. Didn't they all kind of have similar sorts of numbers in terms of the combination of threes and dunks and blocks? No. Taylor stands next to, I think, Chet Holmgren was much more of a shot blocker. And I think Andrew Wiggins in, in combining those areas, shot blocking threes and dunks. Now those are three very, very different players, but it goes to show that his production is very rare. And if I, if there's anything that I think he is getting shorted on apart from the fact that he wasn't a top, top recruit and players will always get shorted if they weren't a top recruit in high school, no matter how high they climb, they could still climb higher. Um, it's that I feel like people see him as a plug and play power forward and only a plug and play power forward. Uh, I think when he has shown flashes of ball handling, uh, it's been very encouraging when he's shown, you know, passing out of double teams or being a connecting passer, he generally makes the right decision. And I am a big believer in handle developing in the NBA for bigger athletic players because they're not used to the amount of space space in the NBA. That's one of the biggest benefits is that if you're a big wing, Jason Tatum or Scotty Barnes or Brandon Ingram, your handle will naturally get better the more reps you have. And so to me, Taylor is athletic enough to take advantage of space early I think he is fundamental enough and a good enough shooter to start pretty early in his career. And if he's 20 years old and starting in the NBA, he's going to get a lot of reps. And that's all you need to start to build out the rest of your game. You just need time. There is not a player who starts at age 20 and then just stays as a plug-and-play power forward in the NBA. That, that tends not to be it. So I think that with Taylor's production, with his fluidity as an athlete, his ability to switch on defense – He's going to find himself in closing units over and over and over again in the NBA. And he's going to have every opportunity to build out the rest of his game that I don't think any team he's been on has really encouraged him to explore yet. And so I don't see a tension in Houston between him and Jabari Smith uh, because I think they are both more versatile than meets the eye, not less. Because versatility has much more to do with what you do on defense than with what you do on offense, especially if you can shoot. So I'm, I was extremely high on Jabari last year, still am extremely high on Taylor this year. So do you have Brandon Miller at five then? I do. Yes. He, he would be next to me. And I, I don't, um, you know, at this time of year when everyone is going over their boards and comparing, it might seem like a real insult to have Brandon Miller all the way down at five, but that's just not how the draft works. If you are the fifth best player in a given draft, it likely means that you have made an all-star team or two. Yeah. I think in the future, it will mean that you will make 
more than two all-star teams because the all-star game now, you know, there's 24 spots, but now like 30 guys make it every year because of injuries and guys skipping the game and what have you. And Brandon um, did a great job this year, low key, not being in that featured of a role at Alabama. There were games where he did not get the ball a ton because they played through um, Mark's, uh, pardon me, Mark Sears um, and their backup. Javon Quinterly, was he on the team this year? I, I mix him and their other guard up. But point being, it wasn't like they gave the ball to Brandon and told everyone to get out of the way. He had to get his shots within the flow of the offense and then occasionally take over. And though he had his hiccups against um, good teams with good on-ball defenders in tight spacing, again, bigger wing in college, he still showed a lot off the dribble, showed good passing vision, and the shot is extremely legitimate. I mean, he got, I think he made almost 150 free throws as a 6'9 wing. And again, I'm, it's hard for me to put that into context, but that means you're making around five free throws a game, making five a game, and that's a lot. And so he he's going to be very good. I just don't believe that he has the inherent athletic advantages to beat other really good wings. It's my only thing with Brandon is that yeah, if I you're think, paying him the go ahead, go I, think ahead. I think that's the same that, you know, I think he's going to be good, but I'm just not, you know, they think these other guys have that higher outcome, higher outcome upside in terms of where he is. I think I've, I've got him at four, but I can easily see him going to five. It's not that I don't think he's good. It's just that there is, yeah, is that, do you get to that extra level that some of these other guys can get to? And that's, yeah, that's a whole thing that we'll have to see develop over the course of their careers. Now, we're going to get into mm-hmm. some other players here. We've got five guys we're going to dig into. Before we do that, I'm going to tell you that today's episode is brought to you by the Game Time app. You're looking for tickets for sporting events, concerts, theater, musical, comedy, whatever it is. Game Time is going to have that in your local area. And you don't have to plan this stuff months in advance. They've got these flash deals, the last minute deals. You see it come up on the app. Hey, look what's happening tonight. You want to go? discounted uh, tickets. You can see where your seats are. You can see what um, view you're going to have of the event you're going to. Plus, if you find the same tickets in uh, the same section or the same row, they will, for cheaper, they will give you 110% of the difference back. So that is their lowest price guarantee. They've got event cancellation protection as well. They've got job loss protection. So many different guarantees in there to know that you're getting the best deal and you are protected when you buy these tickets whatever it is, football, basketball, baseball, um, sports, comedy, theater, whatever it is, game time is going to have it there for you. Plus, they will send those uh, tickets straight to your phone. You don't have to dig through your emails to try and find them. So download the game time app, create an account, use the code LOCKEDONNBA for 20 bucks off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create that account and redeem the code LOCKEDONNBA for $20 off. Download game time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. All right. We are going to go in here and we are going to talk about someone that you are higher on than consensus. We're going to the G League. We're talking City, Sissoko. The look at him, this is a shooting guard. He's probably more of a a, a 2-3. He's just turned 19. Mm -hmm. He's 6-4-5. He's probably going in the 20s in a lot of different spots for the draft. He shot 57 true shooting, which is pretty strong. Um, Three-point shooting, 31%, not particularly good, but... What I look at in those pre-36 numbers, steals, great, blocks, great, nice assists. Um, all that is really, really strong. Being this that prototypical wing prospect who's doing rim protection, on-ball defense, passing, facilitation, some shooting upside, but good size, good length, good defensive profile. These are the sort of players that 
that are, are become coveted in the NBA. Look at all the talk of, hey, what about what can Mikael Bridges do? What can OG Ananobi do? What can they bring back in trades? And Bridges obviously showed more offensive flash this season, but previously he's just been a low usage defensive wing, exactly like Ananobi has been as well. And those sort of players who often go in this area of the draft do become hyper useful in the NBA. As Soko is a little bit shorter than, especially than, than Ananobi at six foot five. But you know, how high are you viewing him? Are you talking? I would consider him as a lottery player. Like, what are you looking at here with Sissoko? Yes, I do consider him as a lottery player. And I actually want to, I'm sorry, what I have seen is that those measurements understate him a little bit. Because what I saw at the combine is that he was six, five and a half in socks. So in shoes, he's between six, 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 seven. And weight, that's the bigger one because he is. It, it, unless that's a different, if that's not pounds, that might be different. No, but that is pounds. It's yeah, from I, a tankathon. Let me have a look if there's any updated uh, weight. Yes. Yeah. If you watch this kid, I mean, he might be 176, oh, yeah. you know, from the waist down. Well, that's crazy. He's a big boy. Real GM lists him at 200, and yeah. tankathon's going to be at 176. That is a gigantic discrepancy. And, and also, I actually think that real GM is underestimating him as well. I think at the combine, he weighed in closer to like 210, 220. Wow. And real GM's got him at 6'7 as well. So in the end, he's just something. He's 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 a height and he's a weight. What it is, I don't know. He's, he, he weighs something. Well, the, 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 the reason I bring it up is that um, his strength is a big appeal to him as a prospect, a big part of his appeal, I should say, because he is a, you mentioned it with the defensive counting stats. He is a very, very, very good wing defender and playing in the G league at age 18 through the whole year, you see the age there, 19 one now meant that he was playing guys older than him. uh, A lot of whom have, you know, spent multiple years in college or maybe have gotten cups of coffee in the NBA. Uh, And he was the Ignite's best overall defender to my eye, which means he was taking the best, you know, player on the opposite court a lot. And he is very, very competitive and he has very good instincts, in my opinion, on both sides of the ball on offense. The shot is developing. That's his question. That's why he's likely to go in the twenties as opposed to any higher than that. But as a driver and passer, I think as he was asked to be a connecting piece off of Scoot and he would constantly make what I thought were pretty advanced, smart, clever passing reads, not just I'm going to swing it to the corner when I you know, am above the break or I'm just going to drive and kick it out. He would make very good interior passes, very uh, creative ways to get defenders to commit to him by driving into them and using his strength, forcing the help to create an open window. And as a um, as a shooter, it would go up and down, but he was not someone who was just stuck in the corners, which is a big thing for me. He showed some shot versatility, shooting above the break, and because he's so strong and thick, when the shot would go in, it would look pretty easy. It looked like it would translate to NBA range, and though it's, you know, he's 19 years old, so it's going to take a little bit of time, I think that he will be able to force his way onto the floor with how he reads the game on offense and defense. And that from there, the shot, I'm betting on it improving. I'm a bet on CD is a bet on his shot. But once that shot comes along, he's going to be able to guard very, very good NBA players. There's and a, that's very, very valuable. There's a five-game stretch for him at the end of February, which I think is when, when Scoot was injured. 
where he scored 20 points per game in five consecutive games. He had 23, mm-hmm. 6, and 6, 24, 6, and 4, 22, 6, and 3, 22, 2, and 5, 21, and 5. And he had a steal in every one of those games and one game with four steals, one game with three steals. And those last two games, 22, 2, and 5, four steals and a block, 21, and 5, three steals and a block. Like they're insane numbers. Like they're ridiculously big numbers. Now it did taper off after that. But that's a really strong stretch where he got tasked with a larger role, more minutes, more usage. And came through and was able to do all those things. And you know, scaling up is always important. Like I talked during the regular season of the NBA, like, okay, there's opportunities here. Patrick Williams, DeMar DeRozan's out. Can you do anything? No. Like nothing changed. Like you weren't able to scale up your role at all. You still mm-hmm. did the same thing. You were passive and you had no usage. And that always gives me red flags in terms of how do you develop moving forward when, you don't, when you're given the opportunity, you don't actually change anything about your game. But it's, it looks here that in this opportunity, he was given the extra role and it worked out really well for him and he was able to put up these, these numbers. And that sort of size and that sort of defensive ability on the wing with some scalability and some... Uh, offensive upside, it's it's really really valuable, and it is surprising to see like some people have got him like in the thirties in drafts, which I, I, I mm-hmm. that, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, and if you compare him to like other wings in the class, they're gonna go high. Compare him to say Cam Whitmore, who's another yep. excellent athlete, who's maybe a little shorter than you'd want him to be, but you know nuclear athlete, things like that. CD is a much 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 better passer than Whitmore is. He just is. And I think he has more polish as a defender. You can prefer Whitmore's talent and potential as a defender. And I think Whitmore's a more promising shooter. But in terms of, you know, those two areas of the game, being a connecting passer, keeping an offense moving, finding good shots, even if you're not cooking, uh, and being able to check really good players, like, I think he's right there with them. And so... When you start to do that, if you imagine if CD Word had played in NCAA this year, his steal and block rates would be excellent. His assist numbers would be excellent. And his team would probably be very good because of how um, aggressive he is, to your point about you know passivity versus aggressiveness. I wouldn't quite put him in the sort of Jeremy Sohan tier of confidence among guys who have iffy jumpers. Sohan really stands alone over the last few drafts for you know how highly he thought of his own game. But CD uh, plays very passionately, plays really hard every every game, and will fit in with a locker room and again force his way to minutes because of that. We'll get back and talk about another player in a second. But today's episode is also brought to you by Bird Dogs. Looking for fit and comfort. In your clothing, shorts, pants, well, Bird Dogs is going to be the answer to you. I am living in my Bird Dogs at the moment. They came a couple of days ago. I haven't taken them off since. I've got a couple of pairs of shorts, but they've got pants there as well. And the best thing about them, not only are they comfortable, not only is there a huge range of colors with the Bird Dogs clothes and pants and shorts, is that they can just transition whatever you need them to do. You are out going for a run, sure. Bird Dogs will work out the liner in the middle there. They're made of really comfortable fabric. But if you need to then head to the supermarket or you're catching up with friends and you're going to watch a game down at the bar or you're going out for dinner, these things will transition and look not out of place at all. So having a pair of shorts that's comfortable, that looks great, that can transition to whatever environment, you're at the beach, you're at the bar, you're at the shops, you're at home, you're at a restaurant, whatever, they can fit into whatever situation that you need them to. I love wearing my bird dogs and you're going to love them as well. And now they've also got a special gift offer. When you go to birddogs.com slash locked on NBA and you enter the promo code locked on NBA, they've got a free custom bird dogs yeti style tumbler with every order so not only do you get pants and shorts that look great fit great feel great 
but you get the free tumbler as well. So go to birddogs.com slash LockedOnNBA. Use the code LockedOnNBA and get yourself that tumbler. You're going to love it. You're going to love the shorts. Get to birddogs.com and check it out. All right. The guy we're going to talk about now is a player that you are a little bit lower on than consensus. It's Anthony Black, the guard from Arkansas, who I think, well, maybe you disagree, but I think you will agree that he is a really, really good defender. And you'll probably also say, yeah, but what's happening on the other end? What is the shooting? What is the offense? Um, Can he ever improve on that area? I have seen people who can be pretty high on him. As you can see, my mock draft database range has him going as high as six, uh, as low as 16. The height in the size is really, really, it's awesome. Like six foot seven point guy, we've seen it. Like, you know, Josh Giddy, Lamelo Ball, Lonzo Ball, who is probably the player he's comped to the most often. Um, but as is common with those three, well, no, maybe not Lamelo, with Lonzo and Giddy is the, the shooting. Like, what, there is a real problem with that. That's a, not a huge usage player as well, uh, Anthony Black. So when you're, say you're lower on him, I I know that, you know, people go, Wizards, eight, they need a point guard. They should take Black or Wallace. I'm I don't have him in that top tier of eight players, but are you like, yeah, he's a top 10 guy. Is he an out of the lottery player for you? I think he's somewhere in the teens and that might mean that he sneaks into the lotto for me. I'm still sorting all of that out. Um, but my, I mean, the the shooting is obviously a massive part of it, but it's more or almost, I guess, equal that he doesn't, when he has a man on him, and he's being guarded, he can um, get cut off and sort of dissuaded from attacking a little bit too easily. You know, one thing about Giddy in the NBL in his pre-draft year is that even though he wasn't a great shooter, even though he knew the scouting report was, you know, go under screens, dared him to beat you, he would still really 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 find ways to get into the lane go to his little spin move and just create like pretty good floater looks for himself and i think part of that was due to his um just his size because even though the black has good size you know six seven giddy was like six eight six nine and you see a lot of his uh buckets at the nba level now are that he can legitimately pressure the rim he's not an elite athlete but he knows how to use his body. Now, I think Anthony is a good prospect, and that's why I have him around, you know, in the lotto tier. But I don't see him as such an incredible athlete that he's going to be able to create those looks. And I don't see him as being able to use his size the way that Giddy has. You know, Giddy averaged almost a double-double on points and rebounds and averaged like six assists in his second season. And... I don't believe that Black has just the natural athletic talent to do that. He's very smart. He's very competitive. But if he is not a lead ball handler, if he has to play off someone else, and I think increasingly the best players in the draft are are guys who can do both, can play on and off the ball. He has to play off of someone else. I think that he becomes increasingly easier to scheme against not for lack of trying he's going to be aggressive he's going to try to find creases he's good at drawing fouls around the hoop when he has an opening he's going to try but it's going to be constantly an uphill climb for him to become a really efficient offensive player and when i think about the nba now and i think about what sort of works in the playoffs and i think about you know the players who really get 
high value contracts and really pay off for teams. He just seems to just sort of miss each little archetype. You know, he's not going to be a nuclear scorer. He's not going to be someone who I think is like a giddy on triple double watch because of his size or anything like that. I think he's just a little rung below that. If you view Giddy on one side of the spectrum and like Dale and Terry on another, there's another six, yeah. seven point guard who showed some passing vision last year. Didn't really get much run for the bulls this year. I see black as somewhere in between those two spectrums, better prospect for sure than, than Dalen was. And he will find his place in the league. I just wouldn't say this guy is automatically a starting NBA point guard if you're going to get to go under on him all the time and he's not going to be dunking all over people's heads. One of the things is like I can sit here and say, yeah, Washington's at pick eight and you say, well, he doesn't need to do that because yeah, Bradley Beal is there. and That's all well and good. Maybe he fits perfectly next to Beal. He's got length. He's got size. He can defend. He can give the ball up to Beal. That's all, that's all well and good. But in two years' time and Bradley Beal's 33 years of age and isn't that guy like just black step up to become that next player? Probably not. Like, are you drafting for someone to be Bradley Beal's backcourt mate for two seasons while Beal is theoretically still in his prime? Like, that doesn't make a lot of sense as a draft um, theory or of what I'm trying to do. Like, I that's all well. That's great. Like, you can fit now, but, you know, rookies and rookie guards in particular are usually really, really bad. And that's probably not going to help them win. And then by the time when you're hoping that he's able to contribute to that, Beal's on the downside, then you're still... Like, sitting with a situation like, ah, oh, maybe I need someone like Bradley Beal next to him. How do I get that next guy? And that probably leads to the concern, whereas it looks perfect. Like, great. Like, that's fantastic. We plug him in right now and it makes all the sense in the world. But in four years' time, you're going to have three players, maybe even two players left on this same roster. And if Black is the guy that you're building around, then you need to then bring the other guys in to make sense of it. And that's, again, why I don't have him in that top eight. And I've got him, I think, at, at 10 or 11 in that situation, mm-hmm. um, which I, I don't even know if I'll keep him there. But that's because, again, we're not looking for what can happen tomorrow. We're looking at what's going to happen in four years, five years. Like, it can be marginally important, but so much changes so quickly that it's not. that's not what it's all about. It's not about drafting for the next game. It's for the next five years, 10 years, whatever it is. And I would say that that's a very good point that you sketched out in that scenario because... I am wary of players who need a lot of accommodation Mm. who are not going to be stars. If you go away from Washington and you say, well, Toronto, Toronto's in a bit of upheaval. They're probably going to lose Fred Van Vliet. They're there at 13. What a fit. They develop well. I can like, I can see that really working for him. I I put him there in a mock draft that I I did last week, but then you go, ah, him and Scotty Barnes, neither Mm. of them really space the floor. Does it ever really work with two high volume non-shooters like that? And it quickly, you quickly realize that like, if he's your guy, that's great, but you're going to need to have real shooting and spacing at every other position, which means he's got to be really special. Amen Thompson I think has the athleticism to be that guy, even if he's still not that great of a shooter. Anthony, I, I, I just wonder, and to your point about defense, he is a very good defender, but I don't see him as an absolute predator. Who's just snatching the ball and putting guards in absolute hell to the point where defense is going to be his calling card for 98% of players in the NBA, their calling card and what they are judged on tends to be their offense because if you are ignorable on offense, you're absolutely done. And the, the guys who are the very best athletes, they're part of me. The guys who are the very best defenders tend to be the guys who are the very, very, very top of the rung athletes. 
Giannis, Jaron Jackson, OG Ananobi, Joel Embiid, Evan Mobley, and it gets crowded. So I've, I'm also wary of guys who are going to say that they're going to hang their hat on defense, or that's the perception, when they are sub-elite, elite athleticism. Let's go on to another player that I am marginally skeptical on. I don't know where you sit on him. It's mm. uh, Jordan Hawkins from Connecticut. He's just turned 21 about a month ago. He's 6'5". The mock draft range I've got of him, someone had him as high as 10. He was down at 21. He shot obviously 39% from three. Everyone remembers what happened through the tournament, leading Connecticut through to the title. He was bombing away. But of course, yeah, when he was a freshman, he played 15 minutes a game, hit 1-3 a game, and scored five points. So I'm always skeptical of those guys who take that second leap up. Again, an older player. And my question's always going to be, Chuck, and maybe you haven't answered this, like, if you're not shooting threes, what else are you doing? What else can he do? Is he going to attack the rim? Is he going to defend? Can he pass? Can you be a guy that, you know, maybe you fit in as a really nice shooter with some ability as a, as a movement guy, but can you ever do anything that justifies being picked at pick 10 in a, in a pretty strong draft to be more than a specialist? I, I, don't, I don't think so with him. Okay, so I disagree slightly, okay. slightly because I'm a bit higher on him. I also view him in that sort of late lottery range. And the reason I do is because I do see him as more than a specialist. Uh, Three-point shooting and movement three-point shooting is certainly what he is best at. And if that's what you are best at, and your team likes to use you that way, then you're going to get that specialist label pretty quick. But you have to remember that UConn, as everyone knows, not just won the NCAA tournament, they dominated it absolutely stomped everybody and whenever that happens whenever you're that convincing there tends to be a bit more nba talent on the team than meets the eye and to me he was their consistent biggest offensive threat was hawkins and yes they used him off the ball because they had tristan newton on the ball a lot and you know trying to run around screens to chase jordan hawkins is exhausting for a defense to keep track of him but he is more physical than you think he is. He's very physical, dragging guys around picks, and uh, he'll do a lot of misdirection. Like, he's very constantly engaged in the game. And when he would get an open lane, he was very good at drawing fouls because you would think a guy who spends all his time shooting threes is not going to get to the line that much. But he, I told you Brandon Miller made almost 150 free throws. Jordan Hawkins made around 125. He made exactly 125. There you go. Bang on. Yeah. Yeah, he, I've, I've studied Jordan a lot. <laughs> and, he, uh, and he shot almost 89%. So you know that the touch is like top of the class. And he didn't shoot great around the rim. That's going to be something he needs to get better at. He's a little scrawny. That's his question. But that team at UConn really prioritized defending very, very hard. And he has, I think, some of the best overall conditioning in the draft. Yep. He was a surprisingly good offensive rebounder, which if you think you're just this skinny, unathletic guy, that's not going to happen. His uh, block rate, I think, was, it was better than good. you'd expect. Yeah, it was pretty good. And so you see this player who is going to be able to take a role on a team pretty quickly. He's going to be able to fit into an efficient offense pretty quickly that they ran a lot of pro style sets at UConn. The speed of the game is not going to be too much for him. And I think that he is big enough and competitive enough and physical enough to lock down a rotation role quickly. And so it's not to the degree with Taylor Hendricks, but it's the same idea. If you're going to be able to play quickly, 
is that just you're going to be a seventh man in year two and you're going to stay a seventh man in year five? Or does that organic growth that comes with playing a lot of NBA minutes raise your level a little bit? I think, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say is like compare him to the role JJ Redick had in the NBA. Uh, so JJ, I think, you know, one of the most gifted movement shooters, you know, ever. Yeah, that, that's, but that's JJ, top, top end, obviously, with JJ. And JJ, you know, got whatever he got, five contracts in the NBA. Mm-hmm. If you look in the draft where JJ was taken, he certainly was one of the 10 best players in that class. I think that um, that's a, you know, a great, that'd be a great outcome for Jordan. But I think that Jordan has a bit more um, physical talent than JJ did defensively. JJ was very competitive and he was one of the best, well, best conditioned guys in the league, but there was a natural sort of like foot speed kind of issue with him where he either needed to be with an elite rim protector, like Dwight Howard or a very good one later with Deandre Jordan. And the older he got, the more of a problem it got. Um, JJ, I think, also an underrated player off the dribble. In in it, and it was almost about knowing when to attack, as much as the ability to attack. And I think Jordan has that as well. So he, I think, he's sort of again on that scale. And it's just if he is, guys, yeah, a cliche, but if he's seventy five percent of JJ Redick or something, is seventy five percent of his career, and he's a three contract guy, then he is probably one of the you know 15 best players in the class. I just believe a little bit more in his physicality, and I think that he's going to creep up and surprise people. That's all. I bet you didn't expect we're going to be doing JJ Redick trivia, but here we are. How many you talk, you talk about making free throws. How many uh, free throws do you reckon JJ Redick made in his senior season? Oh, boy. I think it's probably underrated. I would say, I don't know, 140, I'm guessing. I don't know. 221. <laughs> I know he he made he made over 140 for three years, 143, 196, 221. I did not expect yeah. that he was getting to the line that many times, but that is uh, that's crazy. Let's go yeah. to a player who I've got a lot of questions about, and I'm going to ask you those questions now. We're going to Tennessee. We're going to the SEC. We're talking about Julian Phillips, who on you, know, you got to look it up and get multiple points of data. To talk about him on some sites. Uh, here is uh, Tennessee's small forward. Here is Tennessee's forward. Here is Tennessee's center. Julian Phillips who is 19 years of age, like six, seven, six, seven, six, eight, probably a second round pick. Um, some truly disgusting shooting numbers there, 24% from three, 41% overall. Not, but 82% not, from the line. Yeah, which, which is, is interesting. it's very confusing. A low usage player with not big <laughs> defensive numbers. What What is he? Like, where does he fit? Like he constantly, in every draft I look at, seems to, not everyone, because some of them don't even have him listed in their top um, 60. But most mm. times he's going in the top top forty as a majority position in the draft. But I still, is this one of these guys that you know, plays in college and sort of plays out of position, but it doesn't really work that way in the NBA? Like, what is he as a player? Like, what is his calling card? Uh, I mean, the calling card is his defense and his athletic talent. I mean, Tennessee was the number one defense in the country for a large portion of the year. I don't know if he finished; they finished right there, but they were right there the whole time. And he played big minutes for them, and that's what he did. You know, he they uh, demand a lot of their players on the floor defensively. You need to communicate really well. You need to sort of be tireless. You need to be willing to switch. Uh, you need to be very physical. And he did all of that. So at the Combine, 
his athletic testing was excellent. One of the best athletes at the combine, if, if not the very, very best. So if you compare to a guy like, uh, you know, this, the version of this player last year was Peyton Watson, who gets taken at the end of the first round by the nuggets and, you know, didn't really play for them, but got cups of coffee here or there was very good in the G league and looks like a guy since he's still very young, that they'll be able to work into their system. Um, without going into too much of a comparison between the games of Julian and Peyton, the main difference is that Peyton's going to get to grow up playing off of Nikola Jokic, which not every you know raw wing gets the privilege of doing. And so the other side of the coin with Tennessee, who's such a good defensive team, is that offensively, they're not very creative. It gets very ugly a lot, and the spacing wasn't very good. And so when Julian would attack he would get some foul calls when he would elevate because he just gets off the ground quicker than everyone else. And he can hang in the air and absorb contact, but his handle was rough. He would lose track of it frequently. Uh, and the shooting wasn't good enough to make defenses respect him. So he is, you know, that's why he is where he is. I wonder if he were in a more, you know, symphonic college offense, if he'd be more of a consensus first round guy, but as it stands, I don't believe the deadline has passed for saying whether or not you're staying in the draft unless no, next, I, next week. So I could see him going back and not staying in if he's not going to get a guaranteed deal. But I think that the athleticism is enough and the free throws you know, again, in a limited role, I think he made, I looked this up right before we started, but he made 88 and his free throw rate was over 60 which means when he got the ball, he was aggressive and it was hard for guys to really absorb him. So you rely on that. You rely that he's going to be able to play NBA defense against good NBA players in time. And I could see someone taking him at the end of the first round, sticking him in the G League and trusting their developmental organization. It's just going to it's going to take patience and will, you know, you really just have to believe in the touch and say in three years, this guy's going to be able to shoot from the corners and that's all we're going to need him to do. He's an interesting prospect for sure. Like the, the, the athleticism, the defense is all good, but yeah, we do need that other stuff to come along. But that, that free throw is, is interesting. Like having that level of free throw shooting can be a good indicator. So there is something to work on there. Now that brings us to a shooting guard who can't shoot. So what do you do with Kevin McCullough? a guy that transferred across from Texas Tech to Kansas, shot a horrendous under 30% from three. He was okay from the free mm -hmm. throw line, but it gets by on on defense, really. He's an older prospect. He's 22 years of age, but that the shot is the real problem here. Like Not being able to improve that across... You had one year where he shot over 30% in his four years, like 29, 28, 31, 29.6. As a shooting guard and someone who's playing on the perimeter, to, to be a good defender is all well and good, but that the the fact that there is just nothing that's improved there is pretty concerning i think uh i agree and i i'm not huge on kevin I, I mean if you have a pick in the 50s then sure give it a shot or if he you know communicates he doesn't want to be drafted because he wants to pick his location to go to summer league in and try to compete then you know all the best to him of course um but I'm not a huge jumper mechanics guy. I rely a lot on the numbers and I try to see how confident someone is in getting their shot off and if they can get it off. But even with him, his shot bothers me because what he will do is arch his back and shoot 
almost like even if it's a straight up and down spot up, it will almost look like a fadeaway. And it just doesn't look good. Now, could an NBA team work that out? Sure, but you'd rather catch someone on the earlier end of their jumper development arc than the latter end. You, like you said, one year over 30% from three, and you, you see that 76% from the line. That's his only year above 75% from the line yeah. as well. It would be one thing if he uh, were a great distributor of the ball. Because you can see guys like uh, Caruso, for example, who is not some shooting demon in college, but someone who's similarly very defensively talented, but a great distributor. I think Caruso had like multiple years of an assist percentage over 30, which is like elite territory, constantly making the right play. McCuller uh, played off the ball at Kansas. And even when he was at Texas Tech before that and had more of an on-ball lead role, his assist percentage was about half of what Caruso was doing, you know, in the 15s. He just isn't creative enough to compensate for the shot. The shot's just way, way, way too important. And so that's why I just – I would let some other team take a, a whirl and see what happens, but I wouldn't feel bad about passing on him in draft night. Yeah, like he's a, a low-usage guy for, for a – guard slash wing like 20 percent you're right about the assist percentage he was over 15 percent once and that was as a junior at texas tech at 19 percent the shooting's not there you're not passing you're not i don't know what you're doing and again you're older you're 22 you've had these four five years in college really because he redshirted the first year at texas tech and i don't know nothing really said the defense is great but you've got to be able to do something Offensively, you've got to have something to hang your hat on where you can get out on the court and not be played off it on that end to be able to show that defensive intensity. So I'm not particularly high on McCullough, but the defensive ability will get people to pay attention. The fact that he played for yeah. Kansas will get people to pay attention as well. And people look and he's at also he's been a winner yeah. in college. When he was at Texas Tech, Texas Tech was good. And when he was at Kansas, they were a one seed. So he he plays very hard. He will do what a coach asks of him. It's just the offensive bar in the NBA is very, very high. Very high. And yeah. that's what he's going to have trouble clearing. And look, you see players who are able to do so well offensively in college, they can't do it in the NBA. And players who struggle offensively in college have almost got no chance of being able to be solid enough at that end to really, like, there's always something to hang their hats on. And I'm not sure what he has offensively to be able to do that. But again, we'll see. I don't, I'm not particularly high on prioritizing a guy like Kevin McCullough in the second round. Chuck, that'll bring us to the end of today's show. So first of all, thank you for coming on and chatting about the NBA draft with me, but also tell people what you've got going on over on the Chucking Darts show and uh, what they can uh, expect from you. Thank you. Uh, it's a podcast that covers the NBA and draft, you know, usually in pretty equal amount, but this time of year, even though it's the playoffs, uh, this is when draft really starts kicking up and it's the topic that is dearest to my heart. So I have on um, a lot of scouts. I guest on other people's podcasts uh, frequently myself. Um, I've had guys come on my show who have gotten NBA jobs and who no longer can come on my show. But it's, uh, it's looking not only at a scouting perspective, but about what is mattering in the league and how the league is changing. Because that's what you got to look for in this draft or in any draft. You got to look for guys that stick out relative to other draft classes, guys that who are going to be pain in the next to play because of their versatility. And it's just sort of looking at everything from that perspective. So I'll have probably one or two episodes a week. I'm starting to do some uh, writing. I'm hoping to have two or more or two or three more pieces out before the draft. 
and I'll be on other shows as well. I'm at Chucking Darts on Twitter, as you have up. You follow me there, you'll get my episodes, and they're available wherever podcasts are found. So thank you very much for having me. Not a problem at all. Go follow Chuck. Go listen to the podcast for all of his uh, reckless, reckless speculation. Chuck, thank you again. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Have a good one. And that will do it for me today. Don't forget, follow this podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and on the Odyssey app. And on YouTube, thumb it up. Leave your comments down below. Guys, we are done here. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.